Um, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. Uh, Have you, I'm sure you have. I'm going to ask the question anyways. Have you ever just been wrong about something? Where you have missed something because you just didn't expect it to be true? Like, Like here are some times that I just got it. I just got it wrong. I just missed it. I remember walking out of the Disney film Frozen going, this is the worst flop Disney has ever put out. And then soon realized how clearly wrong I was. Uh, I I believed COVID was uh, only going to last for a few months and then things would return to normal. And here we are in 2022. I I remember growing up thinking jazz is the most uh, convoluted, disordered music that should be reserved for grocery stores and elevators only. And then now I find myself listening to it for hours on end. Or even sports radio. That's another one. I remember driving as a young child in my father's car going, if this man plays another minute of sports radio, I'm going to jump out of this vehicle. And now it is one of my guilty pleasures. I I, I was presented with some new information. There were some new experiences. And I realized that an opinion or an understanding that I had was not going to hold up with the experiences that I was having on a daily basis. I want to say that again. This is very important for this whole series we've been in. I was presented with new information. I had some new experiences and realized that an opinion or an understanding that I had was not going to hold up. And so in this sermon series that we've started over the past few weeks, we're examining our faith and seeing where we might actually be wrong about things, where we have made some assessments or some assumptions throughout our lives about God and about who we are because of who God is. And those assumptions or assessments can no longer bear the weight of our daily experiences in our life. And so we're taking some of our assumptions apart. And what we're doing is we're actually going, we're okay. We're courageous enough. We have enough faith in God. Well, we're going to deconstruct those assumptions and assessments a bit. We're going we're gonna to look at them and evaluate them differently than we ever have before. And, and so over the last few weeks, we've talked about one the theological paradigm number one at Mosaic Church, which is God is exactly like Jesus. There is no unchristlikeness in God. Last week, we looked at God's love always reckons with our power. And this week, theological paradigm number three, which is so important to the life of all of our different churches, God is always present and God is always working. I want to say that again. God is always present and God is always working. In fact, I want to suggest today that the most valuable commodity of our time is presence. Is presence. Um, why? A few, few quick stats to share with you why. Right now for the millennials and Gen Z, we average just above four hours of time on social media apps each and every day, uh, getting close to five hours. There's implications there. Uh, some of you may know or have heard of the game World of Warcraft. Uh, right now, if you actually added up all of the active players that are playing this game, it would uh, be the 12th largest nation in the world. That's crazy. We, we are a generation that spends unthinkable time connected to multiple places digitally at the same moment. Which means that someone fully present to our presence 
is very rare and why I say it is the, 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 the commodity, the most valuable commodity of our time. Now, in addition, we all carry ourselves very differently when we know that someone is present and we are actually present to their presence. I remember I was speaking at a big national hockey, um, it was a hockey camp. And after I was done speaking at this hockey camp, I had a, uh, the organizer of the camp walked uh, toward me with this man. And I knew Mindy fairly well, but I didn't know who she was walking with. Clearly, he was a bit moved by whatever he just experienced in this service that we had for all of these players and coaches. And, and she said, Dan, I want you to, to introduce you to John. I said, John, it's so great to have you here. I'm really glad I could be here. I gave him kind of some knuckles and I walked out. Got in my car and on my way home, I got a text from Mindy. And he was like, well, I'll, that was an interesting response. I'm not, I was expecting something different from you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, just with John. I thought maybe you would ask for an autograph or something. And I was like, oh, shoot. It was John Van Beesbrook, who's one of the most famous hockey players and Hall of Famers that I just didn't know. My response, my posture would have been a little bit different if I actually would have known who I was present to in that moment. Which means presence and proximity actually changes our posture. This is important as we move towards this third theological paradigm. God is always present and always working. If this is true, it changes our posture. Now, as I I say that God is always present and always working, some of you would, honestly, if you really thought it through and let it kind of simmer for a bit, you would be terrified. You would be like, get me out of here now. Like, if that's the case, I'm out. Some of you would doubt it. You'd go, I, no, I, I, you are going to have to show me way more evidence that God is present and working right now. And some days I might be able to, and other days I might not be able to. Some of you would say, well, of course I know that, except your posture hasn't shifted throughout all of these years of doing the religion thing. And so there's obviously some type of disconnect there. Or some of you would be like, I'm ready to engage it. I'm ready. I'm ready to, to see it. I want to be attentive to where God is working and what God is doing. But over the next few moments, what I want to do as we talk about this third theological paradigm, I want to talk about why we miss it. I want to talk about why we miss God's presence and God's work. I want to talk about why it actually matters when we miss it and why it's all possible to embrace it and experience in the first place. And so First, why do we miss the reality that God is present and working right here, right now? When you're at work in school this week, when you're traveling to your job next week, why do we miss that God is present and working with us? First, we do not have, many of us, do not have a a theology to actually see it. So honestly... For many of us, our theology is more formed by like a Greek mythology, right? Where we have an image of God that is almost like a Zeus that is at a distance somewhere and waiting for us to screw up if we don't work hard enough for whatever God is up there. And we'll throw some lightning bolts down if, if we don't. In, in, the, in the, you know, those lightning bolts will be broken relationships or disease or sickness, whatever it might be. But there's some lightning bolts there for us. Or our theology is formed more by an image of like Santa Claus. Right where God is somewhere at a distance and he's making some lists of who's really good and worthy of some gifts and who's not and needs to be put on the naughty list. Or, or there's some of us in this room that have sat under priests or pastors for years that have been really good at what I would call exegeting a piece of scripture. 
right? Where, where we take two or three pieces of scripture from the gospel of John or the book of Genesis. And, and we do that sometimes. We'll do entire sermon series where we exegete certain passages and stay really refined with it. But if you don't have a robust theology that you're reading those through, often what happens is people develop their theologies and ideas about God based on two sentences of text, which can be dangerous. And so one of the things we say is we just got to back up and have a theology that includes a lot of the Old Testament and the New Testament and the letters from Paul and the apocalyptic book Revelation. It's got to have a robust overarching theology that then we then understand bits and pieces of scripture through. And when we actually step back to to create a theology, there are two clear themes throughout the scripture that matter and matter deeply. The first is about God's presence. We see that God's original design was to be with his creation, with God's creation. Our origin story in the Genesis account gives us a picture of a very active God who is creating, who is communicating, and who is communing with God's creation. But even in the garden, right, whether you read this literally or metaphorically, even in the garden, somehow Adam and Eve have an understanding that they are away from God's presence. They believe that they can get away with something because God really won't see them. How funny is that? Adam and Eve, in the beginning, have this mentality that God is is somewhere else and they can get away with something because God's not there. God creates Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis and as sin enters the picture, they lose this perspective that God is with us. But God is not content with this veiledness. And so he pursues and awakens. Throughout the rest of the story of the Old Testament, God pursues humanity to wake them up, to make himself and his presence known. And so you see this in Genesis 18 as God visits Abraham through some different visitors. Or in Genesis 28, in a dream to Jacob, which we're reading about and started with today. Or in a burning bush. God wakes up Moses with his voice or in Numbers 22 through a donkey as he wakes up a guy in Balaam to his presence through angels and prophets throughout the Old Testament and the new in the tabernacle in the temple. You see this over and over and over again. Now, there would be hundreds of years where people really didn't hear anything specific from God. And so the assumption And I use this intentionally. The assumption that we make is that God isn't really present and working all the time. That maybe God kind of watches from the distance and then every now and then says, okay, I'm going to get up and get involved. Like a lazy dad that the, the, the mother kind of finally nudges to intercede for the kids when they're acting out. But, but God has always been present. In fact, God's desire for presence also sheds light on why sin and our shortcomings and faults and failures is an actual problem. It's not merely guilt for wrongdoing. It's this estrangement from God's presence where we're blinded to it. Sin disrupts the communion and love that we were created for. And thus, the solution to sin that God brings about is not merely forgiveness, but God's presence renewed. In our midst. This is the gospel accounts. Where Jesus Christ comes into the world. God in the flesh who is Emmanuel. God with us. 
All the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. Just like in the garden, God makes his home with his creation. God shows his deepest desire for presence with us. Now, I want to be honest. This gets super confusing. Just a few years ago, my, my son Judah, who at that time would have been four, looked at me and go, <laughs> he said, Dad, where's God? And I said, with you. And he's like, and I said, no, 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 I like he, in you. He's like, how is he in me? I, I thought God is Jesus. I said, God is Jesus. And he said, but Jesus isn't in me. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, well, Jesus, you told me is, he was, he's dead. And then he came, I was like, but you remember he came back to life. He said, yeah, but then you told me that he went to heaven and sits at the right hand of the father. And I was like, that's true. And so Jesus, God in the flesh is with the father. The father is in heaven. And the spirit is in you. And he's like, where? My nose, my toes. Like, what are we talking about here? It's all, and here's what I love. And, and, and G.K. Chesterton said this once. He said that the, the, the Christian of the future is a, is, will be a mystic or nothing at all. So there's a part of us that just has to embrace the mystery of this triune God. But just to try and help a little bit and make sure that we're all on the same page collectively. Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? There's a few things that often church folk get confused with. And so I just want to define it real quick when it comes to God's presence in us. There's something that you will hear of in the New Testament that we would refer to as the outpouring of God's spirit. Where the power of the spirit of Christ himself rests upon both Jesus followers and non-Jesus followers to intentionally move the purposes of Jesus forward in the world. This is why at Mosaic we love to work alongside of atheists and Muslims and Jews and agnostics because we believe that Jesus' purposes move forward when it's just not confined to the church and Jesus' folks. Does that make sense? That is the outpouring. But then there's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit where the presence of the Spirit resides in those who have submitted to Jesus' lordship. And what happens over time as Jesus' spiritual fruit begins to kind of come to bear in us. And so all of a sudden, in all of my intensity and harshness, I start to slowly but surely respond in a gentle way to my children. And in all of my compulsion and impulsivity, all of a sudden throughout time, you start to see a self-control that begins to surface. That is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit bearing fruit in me. Nothing in Scripture depicts God as an idol stand at a distant deity. He does not leave us to our own vices. He comes after us and has always been in the business of restoration and renewal. His design has always been to make heaven and earth one in new creation where God's dwelling will be forever with humanity. In fact, the last two passages of scripture reveal the grand finale of redemption in God once again, dwelling physically with his people. Revelation 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place 
is now among the people and he will dwell with them. There will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death and no more crying and no more pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. God is not just present. He's also working. And if God is exactly like Jesus, which we covered a few weeks ago, then God is always working towards your renewal and redemption. That's important. If you have a different image of God outside of Jesus, then it might not matter that God is always working. It might actually be terrifying. But if God is exactly like Jesus, then God's always working towards your redemption and renewal. God is present and working And a healthy theology shows us this. And we miss this not simply because we don't have a theology for it, but secondly, we we often don't have a language for it. Language enables us to see. Sociologists actually tell us that language creates culture. As we name things, we're able to see them in reality in a new way. For example, and this, this is a little geeky, but I love it. Until modern times, humans couldn't see the color blue. No ancient language had a word for blue. Not Greek, not Chinese, Hebrew, Japanese. And without a word for the color, there's good evidence that they may not have seen it at all. And so a researcher actually by the name of Jules Davidoff put this to the very test by going to a a tribe called the Himba in Namibia, Africa, who have no word for blue. Not in their language. An experiment showed they could not distinguish between green and blue. But people from cultures with a word for blue can always easily spot that difference. What's even more interesting, he says, is that the Himba have more words for shades of green than we do. And they are more easily able to distinguish between these than we actually are. Davidoff says that without a word for a color, without a way of identifying it as different, it's much harder for us to notice what's actually unique about it. The Inuit, another example. They see snow differently because they have 29 different words for snow, while we only have five or six. Some languages have no future tense, so they think about time completely different than we do in Western cultures. When something has a name, we can suddenly see it. And for many of us, we are not attentive to God's presence because we've actually never developed a language for it, which is why one of the things we do at our our place on, on a regular weekly basis around our dinner table is we just ask the kids, where have you seen God at work this week? Or maybe where have you missed God working this week where God could have been working? My friend, Sarah Colin Johnson, she, she calls it the gotcha game. And her and her little kids sit around the table playing, where, where, where'd you catch God? Where, where can we get God and see him at work this week? That's important. We miss the reality that God is present and working. One, because we don't have a theology for it. But two, we don't have a language to see it. Last but not least, many of us don't have the need for it. So in this passage, Jacob leaves Beersheba and he sets out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. And part of me reads that, I'm like, how tired are you that you're sleeping on a rock, exposed in the middle of nowhere outside? 
Like how exhausted from seeking and searching do you have to be? How tired and scared could he have been? One of the things that we just have to embrace as a body of people trying to follow Jesus is we only experience the power and presence of a Savior when we actually need the power and presence of a Savior. Which is why we always have to step back and go, am I living in a dependent posture right now? Because many of us, if you're anything like me, we've gone through 10 or 15 years of life where we've slowly but surely kind of climbed the ladder of vocational success, where we've seen our bank accounts grow a little bit here and there, and we forget as we have more access to recreational spending, as we have more access to things of comfort and convenience, that we are no longer placing ourselves in a dependent posture where we actually need the power and presence of God. That's part of why when, when Sophie's talking about sacrificial giving, it is so important that we're going... What do I have? Not, not what do I have in my wallet to give, but how do I actually reorient my life, my daily life, which includes our finances, in a way where we're dependent again upon God's power and presence and provision? Does that make sense? That's why we talk money in the church. God doesn't need our money, but he longs for our dependence. So why don't we see that God is present and working? One, we don't have the theology. Two, some of us don't have the language. Three, some of us just clearly don't need it. And so one of the things I'm asking you and you at home today is if you've been struggling to, to, to be aware of God's presence, are, are one of these areas potentially the areas that you are finding yourself within? That you just got to reckon with and be honest about? But secondly, why does it matter? Now, here's why it matters. If we're not careful, we end up creating a subconscious paradigm that God leaves us when we sin. And I know if, if, you're part, if you're church folk, you're like, well, I know God doesn't leave us. But functionally, do you actually know that based on how you're living your life? John Walton tells us that the whole creation is about God creating a temple to dwell in out of the cosmos. The garden becoming the holy of holies where they dwelt together. When Adam and Eve decided to be like God without God, God doesn't come to them with a, with a gavel, <laughs> right? Going, what have you done? Ready for judgment. God, God comes with a question of relationship. A question of distance and abandonment. He asks the question, where are you? Which is really funny. Because obviously God knows exactly where Adam is. This is a question for Adam, not for God. And the question for us is to remember who's hiding. God's not hiding from Adam. We're, We're taught that God can't look upon sin in many different religious circles. But here God plunges back into the place where sin happens and goes hunting for the sinner to wake him back up to reality, which is I'm present with you even in your sin. So it's not that God can't be in the presence of sin. It's instead us who hide from God in our shame, where we're veiled from reality of God's presence and love. And if we haven't constructed a healthy theology, the first thing that happens is we continue to ask God to show up instead of waking up. To his presence and love. Have you ever find yourself saying that? Like, I've, I've had a really rough week. 
And then God just showed up. It's like, stop. I even caught Macho did a great job today. He started in his first half a sentence asking God kind of to, to be here. And then he was like, God's here. I heard him say, reorient to, to reality. Every, we, we have to be cautious of language like that. And here's why. It becomes very problematic because it delays transformation in us. I have this friend at one of our other churches who she'll, she'll be in hardcore. She'll, she'll be serving. She'll be meeting, hanging out with everybody in the community. She's well known. And then all of a sudden one day, and it happens in iteration, she's gone. And she's gone MIA for months at a time. And I know why, because I know her well at this point in time. It's because at some point she has sinned. She's done something that caused shame in her life. And so what happens often, if we're not honest with reality and shame, we then isolate ourselves away from community, which is exactly what the enemy wants. We withdraw from community and we kind of start this cycle of shame. And what will always happen is I'll see her a few months from that point on the street and I'll say hi and she'll start sharing a story with me. She feels like she can be honest with me and she, she'll end her, her, her kind of confession time with, I just, I just need God in my life. I just need God in my life. And I stop her every time because that's bad language. It's bad language for her. It's this idea that if, if she reaches back out or if she calls God down from wherever, then maybe things can get right again. But until then, I'm going to struggle in my shame. And it's like, no, 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 no. God is with you now. You just haven't woken up to it and in, intentionally some days. And so it delays her and it delays us from transformation because we're not living in reality. So if we haven't constructed that theology one, we continue to ask God to show up when instead we should just be asking ourselves to wake up to God's presence. But secondly, we connect our emotional experience to God's presence. Now, what do I mean by this? It's really simple. Just because it feels like God is absent doesn't mean God is absent. Thomas Merton, who was both a political activist and then a monk who spent decades by himself and with other monks trying to practice an awareness to God's presence, master at practicing God's presence, once wrote, God, who is everywhere, never leaves us. Yet he seems to sometimes to be present and sometimes to be absent. If we do know him well, we do not realize that he, be, he may be more present to us when he is absent than when he is present. What Merton is saying is that God is present and at work, which means that even if it doesn't feel like it, even if it seems like chemotherapy on round five isn't working, even when multiple parents have passed away, even when work is causing insane amounts of anxiety, even when the next season is uncertain, even when that relationship seems to be super dysfunctional and may not work and deliver what you were hoping it would deliver, God is still present and God is still working. But if we haven't constructed that theology, we continue to ask God to show up instead of waking up. We continue to connect our emotional experience to God's presence and thirdly, we miss the primary context for our discipleship and the way that God actually changes us. And so the primary context for our discipleship is our everyday lives. That's it. And unfortunately, the American church 
all of it, has missed the mark on this one. We continue to to perpetuate a lie that the most transformative, meaningful moments will always happen at that church event, at that church group, during a prayer meeting, or when Macho sings a really powerful song. Like, that's, that's in us. That's ingrained and groomed in us. And and obviously that's going to be the case sometimes, but not generally speaking. Generally speaking, the primary context for how God shapes us is when you're walking your children to school. Or when you're doing the dishes and aware of his friendship with you. Or when you are responding to your child who's been way off mark on how they've been obedient or not obedient. And you start to realize that the fruit of the spirit is surfacing in you as you can be truthful with them and see some level of of, of gentleness instead of the harshness that often follows that truthfulness. The context for our daily discipleship is in the mundane. In the culture of American triumphalism, we, we, we base everything on the extraordinary and the next big hill and the next emotional moment. But this is not how God has worked throughout history. We read this scripture about some incredibly big mountaintop moments. But there are so many more days in between those mountaintop moments. And so we need a theology. A theology that helps us wake up to God's presence that is already here. That reminds us that my emotions, though they are real and valid, do not dictate whether God is present or not. And that refocuses me around the mundane, which more times than not are the spaces that God actually transforms us. Now, I'm just going to end here. How, how is any of this possible? How do we access it? How is it possible? This passage that we started with, this is a continuation of one of God's pinnacle promises to Abraham that then flows to Jacob, that then flows to others throughout Scripture, where God says, I'm going to bless you and make an incredible nation out of you that's going to exist to bless other nations. People are going to know me because they know you in the way that you live. So Jacob is now carrying this promise in him. God promises there will be a land that will be yours and I will dwell with you in this land and you will know you are my people and you will live with me richly and deeply. Then moves on to Moses, right, in the book of Exodus. If you know Moses' story, Moses, Moses has a rough story. Has to flee out of Egypt into the desert to save his life. Spends years there reflecting before he hears God's charge to go and lead his people out of slavery and into freedom. Then he has this great sermon, a very kind of big cornerstone of the Old Testament where he gets up on this mountain and and speaks this sermon called the Ten Commandments about all the things you have to do to actually have God's protection and blessing. And if you break any of these, you're going to lose God's protection and blessing. And then he continues to lead them to this promised land. And right before it, he kind of gives this speech and he unveils this this promise and that they are going to go into the promised land. But he's not going. God has already let him know you're you're not going. Your people are going. You're not going, Moses. You're going to pass away, but your people are going to go. And so he kind of gives this charge to his people, go and drive out all the Gentiles. And by that, he means go kill them all. 
And many of us just kind of put that to the side and go, yeah, yeah, all right, go get a Moses. But this really should raise some big questions, right? All of Moses' life should raise some big questions. Does God remove protection from us based on my morality and behavior? Does does God kill people groups? I mean, what have we all signed up for? Like, does, does God base his presence and promises on my morality? We carry this story of Moses around and his little sermon on the hill. And we're just like, let's go. Yeah, we believe in this stuff. And we never ask these huge, glaring questions. But here's the good news of the gospel. This is where God says, I want to at least give you some of these answers. And he comes to show us what God is exactly like in Jesus. That God is not only not like some type of Zeus figure. Where we're toiling for God, but instead we see a God that comes in the form of Jesus and works on our behalf. That God is not like some Santa Claus that's making lists of good or bad, but is actually pursuing the list of people and dwelling with the group of people and yoking his very life to the group of people that would be on that naughty list. Not only that, it seems like God is not like these other pagan gods, although that's some of the stuff that we bring into this as well. We go, you know what? God just God is, is, is angry at sin and has to kill anything with it unless there's some type of sacrifice. And luckily there's a child sacrifice. And so well, he's got to kill his kids so he can care for us. That is that is a pagan God. And luckily, luckily, we have the good news of the gospel that goes, God is not like that. God is exactly like Jesus. Who also has to run to the desert for a while. As King Herod looks to kill him, has to become an exile himself to the desert. And also has his own little sermon on that same mountain where he gets up on that same mountain and delivers what we would know as the Sermon on the Mount. That Sermon on the Mount starts to answer questions like, does God kill people groups? Or does God only like those who behave well? Uh, You would be in trouble if that was the scenario. But then Jesus gets to the end of his earthly life, just like Moses. And he gives a little bit of the the, the end of life charge as well. In fact, he looks at his disciples and he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all I've commanded. And lo, or surely I am with you to the ends of the age. He doesn't drive us out because of our culture or our context or our baggage or our shame or our guilt the way that Moses tells his people to do. Instead, he draws us in. Shows us exactly what God is like by drawing us in instead into his family, waking us up to the reality that the image of God has always been in us. We'll always be in us. Wakes us up to that reality. And we get to live with that reality. Alert to it. Awake to it. 
alive once again, spiritually reborn to it, when we, one, submit to Christ as King and Lord, and two, when we say, yes, I want the Spirit of God in me, come. Which is why Frederick Buckner said it this way, if if you've never known the power of God's love, then maybe it's because you have never asked to know it. I mean, really asked, expecting an answer. (laughs) 